Bible to Genesis chapter 1. I hope you've got an outline sheet in front of you. I think that will be helpful. I had someone that was concerned that it was a little bit long on the outline sheet, but I can assure you there's no more words here than there was the last sermon I preached, so it should be the same length. Genesis chapter 1, we're considering the, the creation of man. This answers some of life's big questions. So let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that it's been recorded uh, in our language and that we have, uh, we have it in front of us. That's a tremendous privilege. And I thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I ask that the, the Spirit would help us to understand your word uh, and help us uh, to apply it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the creation versus evolution debate, one of the many reasons why it matters and the stakes are high is that how man was created has a massive impact on how we regard and treat our fellow mankind. Okay, we need to understand what we believe about the origin of life will impact how we value life. If one holds to the evolution worldview... They have no basis to value human life. There's no objective reason to be against racism, slavery, abortion, murder, the oppression of women or the poor. In fact, a case could be made that this is merely survival of the fittest playing out. Now, I'm not suggesting that evolutionists fail to care about these social issues, nor am I saying that they don't care about people, but I would argue there is no logical reason in their worldview to be concerned about such things. Because in their worldview, there is no standard of morality. And if one is just the result of random chance, they possess no intrinsic worth or value. But the biblical account of creation is very different. Because in it, there's logical reasons to value human life. In fact, there's actually a binding obligation. And this is yet another reason why creationism trumps evolution, because it gives mankind intrinsic value. And the creation worldview, unlike the evolution worldview, has grounds to demand human rights. And what I'd like us to do is to consider the creation of man as recorded in the Bible and determine how it ought to shape and govern how we regard and respond to both God and to each other. I've got three points. The first is this. Man is created by God. Okay, how did I get here? Origin. It's one of the big questions of life. And our answer has all kinds of follow-on effects. How we answer that question will impact our purpose, our responsibilities, our accountability, our value, our worth, our morality, and so on. And it's a question that everybody needs to answer. And the Bible's answer is very explicit. It's very clear. Look at verse 26. It says, And God said, Let us make man. Okay, so this sounds like the conclusion of a divine deliberation. And the proposed plan is to make 
man. And then verse 27 is the execution of the plan. So God created man. There it is. The Bible is very clear. God created mankind. In verse 26, where it says, let us make man. This has generated much discussion. Oh, it's clear that God is talking. The question is, who is God talking to? Okay, you'll notice plurality, let us. Okay, who is the plurality referencing? And there have been many proposed uh, interpretations, some quite ludicrous, to be honest. Uh, some say it's God addressing the creation. Okay, so it's God speaking to the ocean, the trees, the sun and the stars. Uh, But that makes little sense because nothing in the text indicates that the rest of creation is made in the image of God, nor does creation possess creative power. There are others who suggest this is God communicating with angels. Uh, Again, there's no indication that angelic beings are made in the image of God, nor are they involved in the creating of man. Now, others propose that the plural indicates divine honor and majesty, or it's some kind of poetic device to say that God is talking to himself. But the best interpretation is to view this as an early indication of unity, yet plurality in the Godhead. So we could say this is dialogue within the Godhead. Now, sure, you can't prove the Trinity exclusively from this verse. We need the rest of Scripture Understanding revelation is progressive, but this terminology is certainly consistent with Trinitarian theology. So what we have here is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God existing in three persons. They're determining to create man in their image. And they determine that the plan for man is to have dominion over the earth. So that's the divine plan. But understand, God does not employ subcontractors to implement his plan. He does it himself. Man is created directly and personally by God. Man's existence is a result of divine creation. So, my friend, our existence is not by chance. It's not through some evolutionary process that's been ongoing for billions of years, but rather we're handcrafted by God. His hands have fashioned us like the potter with the clay. And mankind, according to the psalmist, is fearfully and wonderfully made. And the process of the creation of the first man is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. You may have to turn a page, but let's read that together. Genesis 2, 7 says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So this is how God did it. And think about that. Okay? This is amazing. He made us in our incredible complexity and intricacy. And he'd done this by his own hand. And then he breathed life into us. So we owe our existence to him. And I want you to notice what's included in this creative work. In verse 27, it says, male and female created he them. 
Okay, so understand that God created the genders. That this is part of his creative work. And I want you to notice, this is so important, how many genders are there? Two. Only two. And since God is the creator, he determines the genders. That's his prerogative. And this is set in stone from the beginning. It doesn't change. Now, these genders are distinct. Okay, we need to understand there's a quality but that does not mean indistinguishability. Male and female are different and distinct by design. And this is vital in our age of gender and sexuality confusion. Now, as one scholar said, we learn from creation that gender is not vague, flexible, or personally determined by preference, nor does it occur by accident or through evolutionary process. God's creation of gender shows that sexuality is objective. It is not subjective, as if it could be determined by the whims of individuals and societies. No person can legitimately claim that he or she is another gender, nor can anyone truly change his or her gender. Okay, because that is determined by God. And hence, all of the confusion of our society... We need to understand that is tampering with God's creative order and purposes. Okay, the Bible is very clear. God created mankind, and that includes both gender and sexuality. And since he is the creator, it's his prerogative to determine gender and sexuality. We don't have that right because we're not the creator. So God determines your gender. Yes, it's through biological processes. I understand that. But it's not your decision. It's not your parents' decision. It's not society's decision. God, as the creator, is the determiner of gender. And likewise, God is the creator of sexuality and all that includes. And hence, he's the one who has exclusive prerogative to determine the context in which we express our sexuality. Okay, we're not free to do as we please. God created it. Okay, he alone has the right to determine how our sexuality should be expressed. And he spells that out in the Bible. And understand in verse 31, where it declares that it was very good. Okay, that includes God's plan for gender and sexuality. Everything about mankind is very good. So the Christian worldview affirms that mankind, including gender and sexuality, are created by God. Okay, understand that man is fearfully and wonderfully made. And that has significant implications. Here are just a few. Number one, we are not God. You and I, we're not God. Okay, we are not the ultimate being in this world. Okay, I'm sorry to break it to you, but the whole world is not about you. And yet, as sinful creatures, how often we live that way. Okay, we want everything to revolve around us. We make it all about me, myself, and I. We live selfishly, materialistically. We use others for our own selfish gain. We get angry when God doesn't grant us our desires. Why do we do these things? Well, it's because we think we're God. But understand, we're not. 
We are created beings. We, we are dependent on God. And hence, we should live for God and his glory, not our own. Okay, we should be living in a way that desires people to see how great God is, not how great I am. Number two, okay, second implication, we are obligated to submit to God. You and I are not free to do as we please as if there are no consequences with God. Okay, since he made us, you and I, we are obligated to do as he says. Okay, understand we are accountable to him. And this is one of the leading reasons why people want to deny that God exists. This is why people want to deny that he is the creator, because people understand the logical connection. If God made us, we're accountable to him. It's as simple as that. So don't believe the lie that you can do what you want and not answer to God. And number three, we should be content. God has created you the way that you are. Now, it's true Hey, there are some things that we can control about ourselves, but there are many things that we can't change. There are many things we shouldn't change. And here's the thing. God has made you a man or a woman, and you should be content and praise him for that. God has made you a certain race, and that's a wonderful thing. God has crafted you uniquely for a specific purpose. You have unique gifts, talents, and even weaknesses. And this is all a part of God's plan for you in his overarching grand plan. And we need to be content how we've been created. Because the Bible tells us that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord. So this is the first thing we learn from the text. Man is created by God. Secondly, let's consider that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. Now, I understand that could sound like a bombastic and chauvinistic claim. Here am I, a member of mankind, saying that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. Okay, if I was a fish, would I say that fish are the pinnacle of creation? Well, that's not the case. Because the text is abundantly clear that mankind is the apex of creation. Mankind is unlike anything else that was created. Human life is the crown of God's handiwork. And the text marks mankind's prominence in several ways. The first is the change in creation formula. Throughout the previous creation acts, God has said, let there be, and it was so. And that reveals the astonishing power of God. When you read Genesis 1, don't forget that. Let there be light, and there was. That is incredible power. But there's a change of formula in verse 26. It says, let us make. And understand that the grammatical structure, this is a lot more personal. And it's unique to man. The second thing that we see that marks out mankind's prominence is the divine deliberation. In verse 26, we have communication amongst the Godhead, and that is not recorded of any other created act. Only in the creation of humanity is the divine intent announced beforehand. Number three, 
the image and likeness of God. Only mankind is said to be created in the image and likeness of God. Okay, that's not said of the animals. It's not said of the ocean. It's not said of the stars. It's not even said of the angels. So this sets mankind apart from other creatures. And if you look at verses 21, 24, and 25, it says that other creatures were made after his kind. But humanity is made in the image of God. The fourth thing that marks mankind's prominence is the repetition of the word create. The first piece of poetry in the Bible is verse 27. And it contains the threefold repetition of create. And the way that it's structured highlights the creation of mankind as the pinnacle. And number five, mankind is given dominion over the earth. Okay, so God has given mankind a job description. And this is known as the creation mandate. And it's twofold. Man was to procreate, okay, have babies, that was one task, fill the earth, but also have dominion. This speaks of rulership, of control, of care. So man was created to rule over the creation. The created realm was for man. And these five reasons from the text stresses that mankind is the pinnacle of creation. We are like nothing else in the created realm. In fact, the created realm is a gracious gift from God for us to enjoy. And this has several implications i want to share four number one this is significant because it shows that man is in no way related to the animals or anything else created understand that man is distinct we are a different class and category that there is no link between man and animals as someone has said there is an unbridgeable gap between human life and animal life And that is significant because it undermines the theory of evolution. Number two, this is significant because it implies that God has given us the created realm to enjoy. Now, isn't that wonderful? God, in his grace, has given us a world that is full of astounding beauty. And yes, it's for his own glory primarily, I get that. The creation is for us too. Okay, God has given it to us to enjoy. Okay, God has made this world for mankind to inhabit. He's given it to us to enjoy and we should do that. Sure, we aren't to worship the creation and yet we should certainly appreciate, use and enjoy what God has given us. Third implication. Okay, this is significant because it implies great responsibility. Since God has entrusted us to have dominion over the earth and understand the fall hasn't made that obsolete. It's just made it a lot more challenging to achieve. But with this mandate comes responsibility. Okay, so when one is married and physically able, we should have children. Okay, that's part of God's intention in marriage. And we are also to steward the created realm wisely. We need to care for it and not exploit it. Now, this is not calling for some radical environmentalist movement. There's enough of them around and they're certainly not Christian. 
But we should respect and honour both our fellow man and the created realm. Okay, that, that's a part of the creation mandates. And number four, this is significant because it implies that God values and loves mankind above everything else in the created realm. You know, there are some amazing things in this world, aren't there? Okay, that there's much astonishing beauty. And yet, if we were to take a journey through the entire universe, see everything imaginable, in your journeys, you would never see anything equal to the wonder of the birth of a human being. Because that is the apex of God's creation. Mankind is the pinnacle of creation by God's design. Okay, and understand, God loves us like nothing else that was created. Okay, he loves us more than the animals of the land, the birds of the sky, the creatures of the sea, because it's only man who can have a personal and loving relationship with God. Okay, and this is possible because of the third point, which I've entitled, Man is Created in the Image of God. Okay, as I've already pointed out, uh, but I'll repeat it just in case you're asleep or you're tuned out. I understand that happens. It's only mankind that is said to be created in the image of God. That is not true of anything that God had created up until this point. Now I want you to notice a few things about the image of God before I explain to you what it means. I want you to notice in verse 27 that man and woman are made in the image of God. Okay, that this is not true of only men, but of everybody. Okay, and this stresses that man and women were created equally. Okay, yes, we're different by design, but God never intended for one gender to be superior. It's the Christian worldview that regards all mankind as created in the image and likeness of God. We have the same intrinsic worth and value. So this is the first important point. This is true of everybody. Now a second important point is determining what impact the fall had on the image of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, what impact did that have on the image of God's in which were created. Okay, we see in our text that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. This is often referred to as the Imago Day, And it leads to a question. When mankind was plunged into sin, what impact did this have on the image of God? Okay, is the image of God now non-existent? Okay, is it only Adam and Eve created in the image of God? Or is this true of all of us. Okay, a couple of scriptures to help us work through this. Okay, Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3 says, And Adam lived 130 years and beget a son in his own likeness after his image, okay, it's the same phraseology, and called his name Seth. Okay, same language, Adam's son was in his image. And providing that Adam retained some of the image of God, it means this was passed on to his son. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. 
For in the image of God made he man. Murder is a serious crime because man contains the image of God. And this verse would make no sense if the image was now non-existent. James chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Okay, so here James says that man is after the similitude or image of God, which again shows us it didn't cease to be part of man after the fall. Okay, so it's still present. But we need to understand that sin had an impact. Okay, the image of God in man has been marred. That's the terminology that theologians will use. It's been affected. It's been impacted, but it's still present. So all mankind who have ever existed was made in the image of God. Okay, not, not in the same extent as Adam and Eve, because now all mankind are born in sin. Okay, there has been a change. Death, decay, and corruption are all planted within us, and yet the image of God is still present. Now, one commentator used this illustration to show what happened to Adam in the fall and what's now true of us. He said, picture a three-story house that was bombed in wartime. The bomb had destroyed the top floor entirely. The debris of which had fallen into the second floor severely damaging it. The weight of the two ruined floors produced cracks in the walls of the first floor so that it was doomed to collapse eventually. Okay, I hope you've got that picture in your mind. Okay, thus it was with Adam. So we could say the third floor was the spirit of man. The second floor is, is the soul or the, the inner man. And the first floor is his body. Now, when mankind fell, that the spirit, okay, that was entirely destroyed. The soul ruined and the body destined to a final collapse. Okay, so the image is still present, but it's marred. Sin has affected everything about us. Now, the third question, and perhaps the most obvious, what is meant by the image and likeness of God? What, what does it include? How does it make mankind unique? Okay, I want you to notice something in the text that's obvious, but it's quite easy to miss. The text doesn't tell us what is meant by the image and likeness of God. Okay, there, there's no definition in brackets. There's no explanation and hence, we need to be careful to not be too narrow or, or too assertive in our definition. Now, I love what one theologian said. He said this, Every way in which man is like God is part of his being in the image and likeness of God. Okay? Every way in which man is like God is part of his being in the image and likeness of God. Okay, and I think that's really good because it shows that it's multifaceted. Okay, don't believe this is thinking of just one particular quality. So what's included in the image and likeness of God? Okay, well, let's start by defining the terms. Okay, image and likeness are similar terms. Image signifies a copy or a representative figure, whereas likeness refers to a pattern or a form. 
And likeness is probably included to protect against the possibility of adopting the false view that man is an exact copy of God. Okay, so if it just said man is made in the image of God, we may think, well, hey, I'm exactly the same as God. Everything that's true of God is true of me. Okay, but that's not true. So with these terms together, we see that mankind is like God in some way, but we aren't an exact copy. In other words, we aren't God. But there are things that are true of God that are also true of us. Can think about it like this. God is a spirit, which means he's invisible. So he created man to be a visible and living image on this earth. Okay, but what is included in the image and likeness of God? Now, here are some very broad categories that I would like to supply. First of all is ontologically. What that means is man is a living, personal, self-conscious, active being with personality. Okay, man is a complex unity of body, soul, and spirit. Then there's volitionally. Man has a will and the ability to select between various choices. Man can discern between right and wrong. Intellectually, man has a rational mind. He is aware of himself, his environment, of others and God. Man can think critically and logically. He possesses memory, imagination, creativity and language skills. It's also talking about emotionally. Okay, a human experiences a wide range of emotions and feelings, such as fear, anger, guilt, anxiety, shame, happiness, joy, and human emotions are incredibly complex. Then there's morality. We are able to make moral judgments, and we have a conscience. We feel guilty when we do the wrong thing. Relationally. Man is equipped to participate in relationships with other people. Spiritually, man is able to have a relationship with God and experience communion with him. Mankind has a God consciousness. Eternality, man doesn't cease to exist after death. Death is not the end of life like it is for an animal. And then there's functionally. Man has what he needs to fill, rule, and subdue the earth on God's behalf for God's glory. Okay, so, so this and probably other things are all included in what it means to be made in the image of God. Okay, but if you want the perfect illustration, if you want the perfect example of the image of God in man, we need to look to Jesus Christ. Because in him, the image of God is perfectly revealed but with adam and eve okay this was perfect until the fall and for us it's been marred by the fall because now we inherit sin rather than original righteousness we, we are not born into a relationship with god okay and every aspect of our life is tainted and stained by sin but nevertheless, it's still true that mankind is made in the image of God. Okay, it's certainly not as glorious as it once was. It's not as glorious now as what it will be one day. But it's still true of every man, woman 
and shines. And this has huge ramifications for theology, for ministry, for daily Christian living. Because what this means is that mankind possesses intrinsic worth and value. Okay, all mankind are valuable because they possess the image of God. And this impacts just about every area of life. And I want to leave you with four thoughts as to why this matters and how it should impact our lives. Number one, how we treat others. Okay, how we treat others. Since everybody is created in God's image. That ought to affect and govern how we treat people. It's interesting in Genesis 9, it uses the image of God to condemn murder, but then James uses the image of God to condemn hurtful and harmful speech. So from this we see that the image of God is to impact how we treat others in every sphere of life. Okay, from something as serious as murder, right down to what we say about someone. Okay, to put it bluntly, we, we ought not to be racist, we ought not to be sexist, we ought not to be any other ist. Okay, we, we ought not to be discriminatory. Why? Well, because we are all made in the image of God. You're not superior. I'm not superior. Okay, and in light of this, we should strive to treat all mankind with dignity and respect. And as Christians, we of all people should model this. Because how can we be so quick to mistreat others made in the image of the one who we profess to love more than anything else? Okay, if you burn a flag, you disrespect that country. If you mistreat people, you're dishonoring the one in whose image they are made. And this is true in the big things and the small things. Okay, and let's sharpen that application point right up. How are you treating those that you live with? That's where the rubber meets the road. Whether it's your spouse, your children, your siblings, your housemates. Everyone under that roof is made an image of God. Are you treating them that way? Or are you yelling, screaming, abusive, cruel, unkind, demeaning, unappreciative, disengaged? Everyone under the roof is made in the image of God. That needs to govern how you treat the people you live with. And a good question for us to consider is this. Are we treating people the same way we would treat Jesus if he were with us in the flesh? Okay, that's the right way to treat others since they're made in the image and likeness of God. Number two. This makes the incarnation possible. Okay, since mankind are created in the image and likeness of God, that means that Jesus Christ, who is God, could become man. Because although deity and humanity are not the same, they are compatible. Okay, so here, right in the beginning, we see the wisdom of God in making us this way because it made the incarnation possible. And when Jesus took upon himself human flesh, it's there we see the image of God perfectly lived out. Okay, he reveals what it looks like practically in all the day-to-day -day scenarios of life. Okay, and Jesus has made it possible 
for the image of God to be restored in us, which leads to point number three, the image restored. In the New Testament, you and I, we're exhorted to be like Christ. Okay, we're, we're commanded to conform to the image of Christ. Understand, this is about restoring the image of God in which man was originally created. Okay, as I've argued, that the fall has marred the image. And it took Jesus Christ to come as man to correct it. Okay, Jesus, he lived a perfect life that we could not and he died for our sin on the cross, rising again on the third day. And now it's possible for you and I to be saved from sin. And once we are saved, the image of God is slowly restored. Okay, at conversion, we again enter into a relationship with God. Okay, that which was broken is mended. That's amazing. And then our Christian life is all about restoring that image of God. Okay, we refer to it becoming more and more like Christ. That's sanctification. That's enabled by the Holy Spirit. And my friend, I hope you're making progress. I hope you're more like Christ today than you were 12 months ago. I hope this is becoming more and more clear in your life. And then there's a time coming when the image will be restored perfectly then we will be glorified. And that is all ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fourth and final point, being in the image of God demands relationships. God is a relational God. For all eternity, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in perfect, loving relationships. Perfect harmony and communion. And since we are made in the image of God, we need relationships. Firstly, we need relationships with one another. Okay, the one who says they don't need other people, you're going against how you're made. Because being in the image of God means you need relationships with other people. You need love. You need friendship. Okay, this is a basic need required by all. And may this be something that we pay attention to. May we be more deliberate in cultivating and pursuing meaningful friendships, especially in the church, because we need this. It's an integral element of life. Now, it's true, friendship can be messy. Friendship can be hard. But you need it because that's how you are made. And may this be something that we prioritize and pursue. But we also need relationship with God. And this is more important than any human relationship. And here's the thing. Since you and I are made in the image of God, it's possible to have a relationship with God. Okay, God made man this way because he desires a relationship with us. Now, not because he needs it. God is not incomplete in any way, but he's extended that to us and he's made it possible by his grace because this is what we need. We need a relationship with God. As has been said, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill. My friend, that's how you're made. 
And you won't be able to fill that apart from God. You won't find true meaning. You won't find true satisfaction apart from God. Money can't do it. A nice house can't do it. A Lamborghini can't do it. A billion dollars can't do it. Only God can fill that hole. And here's the good news. We can have a relationship with God. Okay, well, we can know God closely and intimately because that's how he made us. And that, my friend, is one of the greatest privileges of life. And I trust that, that you are pursuing and investing in your relationship with God. Because this is possible because we're made in his image. And Jesus Christ is about restoring that image. And because of him, because of his work on the cross, we can be in relationship with God again. And it's only there that you will find true meaning, purpose, joy, and satisfaction. Okay, that can only ever be found in Christ. And I, and I trust that you are, if you're a Christian, you are investing in that relationship more than anything else. You know, all mankind are made in the image and likeness of God. And that is meant to impact and govern just about every area of life. And may the Lord help us okay, to apply this in our day-to-day -day lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you. Uh, for your word, thank you that we are created uh, in your image. Lord, we acknowledge that uh, it's been marred uh, because of our sin. Uh, and yet thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who has gone about uh, restoring that image. Thank you that we can be in relationship uh, with you. And uh, Lord, I do pray that uh, this truth uh, would be impacting uh, how we live our day-to-day -day lives. It would be governing uh, how, how we treat uh, each other, because we, we understand theology is not just meant to be uh, in our heads. It's meant to get to our hearts and impact our attitudes and actions. And I, I pray that that good work would happen in our hearts today, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite Paul.